Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings, and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your hosts, Dave Gurney. I am here with... Carlos Cooper. And Joe Hilliard. Sam Raimi is burning up the charts these days. Um, some would say, some and, would say, and, and unfortunately folks, for, for those waiting with bated breath, not looking at the episode title, we're not talking about that film that burned up the charts. And we, and uh, we talked and last we would week never. in our after hours, <laughs> uh, after hours last week, we talked patreon.com slash beer and movie podcast. We talk a little bit about why we decided not to do it. So yeah. no reason to belabor that now, but Sam Raimi's one of those guys that we all kind of admire, and we have talked the Evil Dead, so we if we're not going to talk about Sam Raimi's Doctor Strange, let's talk about some other Sam Raimi. Let's talk about some other Sam Raimi. But first... I'm thirsty. We must moisten the glasses. Now, mm-hmm. I was I was at H-E-B this Sunday, Mother's Day, and I was looking around. I sent a message to the group. I did not get a response back very quickly. And then very soon after that, realized, oh yeah, they're probably like busy, <laughs> and not <laughs> Mother's Day, and not just waiting on me to text them about <laughs> silly beers. Uh, but I saw this beer and I thought, okay, it seems like too good a tie-in to, and you know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, we do our best tie-in wise, mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes we're either really reaching or we just give up altogether. And this seemed like too good a tie-in to pass up, and one that I was a little interested about too because it's a bit, it's a bit strange. <laughs> uh so, yeah so i saw this it's a beer from shiner who have got to be in the five timers club by now i don't know if i don't know i feel not, like we but... we've definitely had shiner but I, I don't know if we've gone back to the well a texas favorite times. yeah uh but this is the shiner tex hex brujas brew ipa it's an india pale ale brewed with cactus water and uh features amarillo hops 60 IBUs and it's 7% ABV. Now, uh, for the gringos in the audience uh, that aren't from South Texas and don't know what the fuck is going on, a bruja <laughs> is a Mexican witch. And this film features someone being called a witch repeatedly. Right. Had, so, somebody who's in connection to the other world, right? Yeah. Somebody, somebody We've that. had Spetzel Brewery twice, the Shiner Homespun Cream Ale <laughs> and the Shiner Day Quencher Session Ale. I'm, wow, we've never even done Shiner Box. We haven't done up. Shiner that, proper. We'll have I, to do that. I brought point. the cream ale and I remember what the tie-in for that one was and it was some of my finest work. Go ahead. What was it, Homespun? What, what did you put it with? I can't remember. Uh, homespun cream ale with yeah. uh, Stifler's. Oh, uh, God. Was that was diet. early. Oh, and yeah. That's actually, funny. Actually, we drank that. I, I hate to. We drank episode three. Blockers. Oh, oh yeah. But that was the same episode as American same, Pie. It was the same yeah, episode yeah. as American Pie. I could have sworn it went with American Pie. The beer we enjoyed with American Pie was uh, Blue Ribbon. I think that might be reversed. Is I think, that we might I have think it might have been the well, other way. Oh, it doesn't matter. I've got to go into the archives. I will have it corrected <laughs> okay. by it next matter. week's After Hours. Yeah. It's it, it's neither here nor there. But uh, just so we can fully grasp this tie-in, Joe, what movie are we talking about? We're talking about Sam Raimi's 2000 release, The Gift. Uh, it stars Kate Blanchett doing her best Georgia accent in a tiny town of Brixton, Georgia, where nothing is private. A woman with supernatural clairvoyance who does like um, not tarot cards or not tarot cards, but they're a, some kind of card system yeah. to, uh, 
to look into someone's future or past. Do a reading. A young, beautiful socialite, played by Katie Holmes, has disappeared. The cast of characters that could have potentially killed her are her abusive... I'm sorry. uh, Are... Hillary Swank, one of Valerie, one of Kate Blanchett's customers, her abusive husband, played by Keanu Reeves. Donnie. Greg Kinnear plays the missing woman's fiance. He, yeah. she, he could have Principal of the school. Uh, Giovanni Ribisi is another client of Kate Blanchett's who's got some, I guess, some mental issues, issues with his yeah. father that Emotional are unresolved. Trauma. Certainly yeah. showing some violence. He could have done the killing. Uh, the sheriff who's in charge of the investigation is played by J.K. Simmons. All of them, of course, doing their best Southern accents. Um, but that that you is, say that somewhat sarcastically. No, I thought the acting in the film was actually pretty good. Okay. And, and uh, anyway, that's the assortment of colorful characters. They all collide in this film. And then you know this synopsis was written by the film company. It's a haunting psychological thriller. Ultimately, a profound celebration of the human spirit. <laughs> that, well, I don't know about geez, that. I don't know if I. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know about that, but it's Sam uh, yeah. Raimi kind of flexing some uh, studio muscle. I'm going to do a studio film. There's going to be a big, a big cast. You heard the cast there. Uh, not, you heard the list of stars. Not all at their height, though. J.K. Simmons hasn't really come into his own yet. I don't He's, think Hillary Swank was quite there yet. When did she Million had Dollar won Baby her Oscar out? already, right? Boys Don't Cry, I think, was before in this. The 90s. I think that was 99. Right. And this is but just before this. Yeah. So it's it's uh, likely that when Simmons they were casting was... her, she hadn't even had that breakout. She might not have actually gotten that award yet. But... She had been, of course, the next Karate Kid. Let's just be fair. Yeah, That's true. Fair. Uh yeah, the J.K. Simmons a renaissance hasn't happened yet. I feel like Giovanni Ribisi is still pretty young in his career. Well, and he's, uh, and although he also although he never, never had hit. a breakout. No, he never. He's always been kind of a working actor. Yeah. Quick, quick aside: he is in the new Paramount Plus series, The Offer, about the making of The Godfather. Yeah. He plays the main Which kind of mafia guy that's going against the film for being, they say, an anti-Italian caricature. Mm-hmm. So okay, so so. The gift itself. This is two thousand, right? Mm-hmm. So like, Army of Darkness has happened already, right? Like sure, all the yeah. Evil Dead franchise. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam Raimi has some credits under his belt, but he still hasn't done Spider Man yet. Nope. Um, In fact, there, there was a little bit of. Uh, did this film get delayed a little bit because he jumped on to Spider-Man and they were still in post-production or something with this? Interesting. And so I, 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 I believe this that. was still being worked on as he made the deal to do Spider-Man. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, stacked cast. One interesting thing about Sam Raimi is that I feel like he has a pretty good eye for talent. I watched this movie, felt a certain way about it, Googled it to see what the critical consensus was about it and was kind of surprised. It has like a 57% on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. I found this to be a fantastic movie. I really liked this movie. Interesting. I think that this movie proves me wrong about something. And what it proves me wrong about is Keanu Reeves' acting chops. I, I have said in the past that he's a movie star. Not yeah. a great actor, but an undeniable on-screen presence that's great to look at, has a certain charisma, but is kind of one note. He's 
acting in this movie. Yeah. Like he is his performance in this movie is very good. He is he is a man who has been accused multiple times of incredibly appropriate behavior on set. An all <laughs> an all-around good guy. Yeah. Nobody seems to dislike this man and he scares me in this yeah. movie. Well, and and apparently he wanted to back out of it too. Really? Because he did not like having to play this kind of character and understandably so because it is a despicable oh, character yeah. that he seems to have dialed in in a strange way uh, given and i say strange way because he wanted to back out of it but he's really really good in this role even though there's maybe a couple of times where Kate Blanchett kind of slips out of her accent a little bit, I think that she is very good in this role. I agree, and I also agree with you about Keanu Reeves before I th- we move too far past it. I think Gianna, I think Giovanni Ribisi is acting his ass off in this movie. He is incredible in this, I think. And dis- and I, you know, there is a certain point in this film where you haven't been told what the ending is going to be yet. But you know, like there's a certain point where you're like, okay, I get it. I get where this are, is going. Are you saying you had figured out who the killer was much before they reveal it? Not much before. Okay. But a bit before. And even though probably maybe five or ten minutes before it happens, right? But before that, there was a point where I looked at Kylie and I was like, Buddy did it, which is the Giovanni Ribisi character. And then it goes on a little bit more and I'm like, Hillary Swank did it. <laughs> for sure for sure Hillary Swank did it she then it found goes out with, that he was having that the, yeah. the girl was having the affair with her husband and, and so she kills and, her and she comes back kills well it, it's it's the part where she's saying that she's been having these unchristian thoughts and she's glad she's dead and mm-hmm. like all this stuff like that and I was like mm, she might have done it uh, and by that point you've kind of put enough together that you kind of have a good idea who didn't do it um, I thought it was JK uh, Simmons the whole time <laughs> did you really no okay I was like wow uh and and then there was a point where I was just like, where I thought Gary Cole did it, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, and right, I, right, I, like when she goes to his house, who is the uh, prosecutor? He's the prosecutor on the case. Uh, who was having but an affair know, with yeah. Katie Holmes. Katie uh, Holmes seems like was having an affair with everybody. She was having many affairs. Um, had she been married to Tom Cruise at this time, she would not have been allowed to take this role. Uh, <laughs> but she. But yeah, so and uh, when Kate Blanchett's character Alice goes to uh, Annie, sorry, Annie goes to meet with the with the prosecutor and say, "I don't think that Donnie Barksdale did it," which was Keanu Reeves' character. During that scene, there was like a tension there, and I was like, "Oh yeah, he did it for sure." Right. But then, of course, he didn't. Uh, but because there are so many characters that, in a subtle way, are set up to have some kind of believable motivation behind it, you know it. A lot of the reviews say it's a very predictable whatever, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, I guess so, maybe. But, like, also it was fun to kind of... And maybe this is, like, the difference between me and, like, some people that watch these kind of whodunit movies where they, like, want to really be right and, like, guess. And I feel like I have... My perspective on it is, like, more wondering to myself, like, well, who could have motivations to do this? And, like, in my mind, exploring the different things that could have brought any of these different characters to commit this act, which is where I went with this. Um, I found it paced really well, very entertaining, uh, great performances. I'm a little mixed on the score, but I think that it's fairly appropriate for the setting and everything like that. Love the use of the Oldsmobile, which is something that pops up in all. Of oh his yeah, films, right, but, right. This know. is the the same uh, car used in Evil Dead. Evil that, Dead, yeah, yeah. and it shows up in all his movies. Apparently, it even shows up in the new Doctor Strange. Is movie, that right? Wow. A, a spotting of it somewhere, um, and 
you know, there's like this opening scene where there's like these trees and this fog and it's just like so Raimi-esque. You yeah. know, everything has his visual stamp on it. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I, I found it to be a very pleasant watch. I, I agree. I mean, this is a film that was under my radar at the time. I wasn't, I mean, I was a Sam Raimi fan by then, but I, but I guess I was thinking it was more the the silly horrors that you know the Evil Dead stuff that I was a fan of. Spider Man hadn't come along yet. Yeah. I think this one. I I do think I saw a Simple Plan around the time it came out. I don't know if I saw it in the theater for sure, but I definitely saw it around the time it came out, and that was a couple films before this. So I was a big fan of Simple Plan at this time. <laughs> the, the band. band. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know. I don't know why. I can't explain to you. Other than I was, you know, just out of college, the timing, maybe I just wasn't making it to the theater quite as much. I was partying too much. I don't know. Yeah, just out of undergrad. Um, Whatever it was, I don't even remember this film coming out. Um, And when Joe was sharing the list of potential Raimi films that we could do when we decided to do this Raimi episode, I'm like, that's one I've never seen. I would be curious to see that one. So I was kind of excited that we we chose one uh, that that I hadn't spent the time with before. And once I saw the cast, I was especially excited because these are all people who I really respect and have seen in many films that I've loved. Um, but most of them, as you've pointed out, at early points in their career. It's so funny to see. I mean, Kate Blanchett is sort of timeless in a certain sense i feel like i you know she but she does look younger and and there is something kind of charming about just seeing this very young version of of this actress who i've come to see you know in many different roles since then in 22 years yeah and whose career has really just only taken off further and further she's got a paul rudd quality about the way that she has aged. yeah that's true i I think you're right there she's gotten better looking yeah, um, but but also, you know, what you pointed out already about Keanu Reeves, this is like a very un-Keanu Reeves-like Keanu Reeves role that he does a really good job with. And this is just after The Matrix, right? I mean, this the is... The year after, yeah. It, it, and I imagine that this film was probably already set up before The Matrix actually had landed and that there wasn't, you know, they didn't know, like, he was going to hit that level of stardom. Um, and that people wanted to see him with short hair and clean shape and right. stuff, you know. Um, so, so that's fantastic. Katie Holmes, obviously, earlier in her career. Greg Kinnear as well. I mean, it's it's really kind of cool to see all of these great talents performing together in what I think is a fairly rich story with a lot of interesting character relationships. I mean, some of it fits into some kind of cliched tropes, you know, the, the Katie Holmes character being this just, you know... Um, Whore, you know what I mean? Like just out there, like you said, she's having a sexual relationship with everybody in the town, um, and only because she wants to like upset her father or something. I mean, I don't, there's not really like they don't great... give her a motivation. They give they they give her a motivation for not liking Greg Kinnear, right? But he's end. too vanilla. He's too plain. And like, she's only with him because her father father likes, likes him. him. Yeah, but so... uh, it's. Uh... I mean, I guess she's trying to get back at him, maybe. Or, yeah, but, but well, why? Just de- defy you know? convention that's kind of been thrust upon her as the socialite in this everyone knows everyone town that has a country club. Yeah, yeah. and I guess, and I guess maybe it's more of um, just a byproduct of being raised 
very privileged and probably suffering little to no consequences for her actions well, that's for it. the yeah, majority it seems... of her life. And so she's like, well, I can just do whatever I want. Nobody's going to stop me, right. you know? Right. Um, but, but yeah, a little underdeveloped. You know, Sam Raimi has come under some criticism for having fairly underdeveloped female characters in his film, but this is probably but, uh, one of the more egregious ones. Well, okay, her, but Annabelle's really a well-developed character, or Annie, you know, Kate Blanchett yeah. is, a, is a really well-developed character that's yeah, really is. the lead character who we're spending the most time with. Yeah. Should be noted, this film written by Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, I forgot, along, with, I his, to along with his partner Tom Epperson. When yeah. they, I mean, they were cranking out screenplays in the 90s. Yeah. I mean, the, obviously, and this was after Sling Blade, where he had finally had his big success with one of his stories but still you know seeing them made by other filmmakers and 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 i mean again set in the south so that's his wheelhouse these interesting characters apparently from what i read thornton's mom was a seer was somebody who that's the annie character is loosely based on his his mother um so that's kind of fascinating right there that he's tapping into this you know experience he had as a, as a kid with a mom who was kind of probably an outsider in the town in a sense yeah. but also integral to how the town functioned and how so many people were getting information from her yeah um and as like a little snapshot slice of life kind of thing which is funny to say about a film that's about like supernatural goings-ons and all that yeah. i found it really fascinating it's like it, you know joe was talking about the the accents here and everything like it really felt like this it's supposed to be Georgia, right? That's yeah, where, it's yeah. Georgia. Yeah. Um, you know, it felt like this kind of like '90s, hot and humid Georgia. I, you know, I really just enjoyed the that sort of like almost time machine element of it. That, to my eyes now, is like this look back at this earlier era, and it's right before cell phones and the internet and everything yeah, you know she's using and, a payphone a lot yeah so it, and it is funny just to see these things that are like oh they were right on the precipice and all these performers who i associate now with this moment in this just prior moment yeah it's they, a good old-fashioned southern gothic and we to my recollection we haven't explored that territory since we did that um tom holland Oh right! Uh, what was the name? The of devil. That? Bef- the the, before, the devil in me, or the no. not before the devil knows you're dead. No, that's, we did that as well. That's a different. I think we. Yeah, I'll look it up. All right. If you don't mind, David. Yeah. Um, and the, with the spin of the general, like deep South's religious views that are going to be in opposition to what Annie's profession is. The devil all the time. That's right. Mm. Uh, which I think we all kind of liked, right? I think we had a yeah. mixed to positive review on it overall, yeah. But this notion that, I mean, like, I'm having unchristian thoughts, you know, means yeah. that they're nodding to the idea that this, like, church-based lifestyle is so important within the South, and then the idea that this that Annie is, you know, doing readings, and that would be considered the occult in, in, that kind, in those kinds of pockets... Uh, it, it you know th- there's a an incredulousness that's given to her and what she does by all of the lawmakers in town who grudgingly bring her in to see if she can you know help crack this case of the missing girl that has not been right. found yet and indeed her gift leads them right to her you know she's in a Eventually, pond she, yeah. she's in Keanu Reeves properties on in the pond 
and she takes them right to there, which, you know, doesn't make anyone really say, hmm, wait a second, you know, there's, there's this, this could be a actual gift that this woman has. And it, but I, I, I thought I could have used a lot more of kind of like that dichotomy, the religious folk and her, you know, being blasphemous or, yeah. you know, however you want to put it. I think that would make it a little like cliche, like wish witch hunty a little bit. I, I mean, I, 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 I see your point, but that's where I think Sam Raimi really could have played a lot more. And, and he does play here. There's big, um, uh, there's some supernatural kind you know you talked about the trees and the fog and of course you know we know where that was birthed in his career evil dead of course but the uh the floating in the water but the waters in the trees and you know lots of cross dissolves doing a lot of interesting visuals here that i think are really pulled off well and then I did, did want to comment on the Giovanni Ribisi character and the revelation that he's been, I guess, sexually molested yeah. by his father for a yeah. long period of time. Like his whole childhood. Yeah, like if you got to look into the blue diamond, it turns out the blue diamond is a tattoo on his father's belly, belly button, belly button yeah. area, which is something he must have seen when he was being made yeah. to do things that... I can't imagine. Yeah, uh, with your dad. That's a very, very dark revelation. Like yeah, that, that right. Scene. And it it... I mean, there's a there's a movie with that just that character. Yeah, but I think that the function of it in this script is to show him as a potential character that could have committed the murder as a red herring. Yeah, but but a I was with bit, you, Carlos. Yeah. I was Scooby Dooing because I had seen this in the theater. I remember seeing it in the theater, but I don't remember a thing about it. Um, Scooby Dooing who the murderer is because mm-hmm. that's you know, and at the end we find out that it's spoilers. Uh, Greg, Greg Kinnear, her fiance, who was reacting to finding out that she was the town floozy. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, and I mean, you know, she is set. She's pretty fucking mean about it <laughs> when he confronts her. I mean, you know, it, it, it's unapologetic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But like in a. It was an interesting turn for her character because. I guess it's. It's the only time. I mean, there's not really even any setup for it other than the fact that we see her in the closet with Gary Cole earlier in the film, but it's there's not a whole lot of setup for her completely shedding the facade and just being like vicious. Yeah. Cuz she like t- I mean, she tells this guy that he's not worth a fucking shit yeah, and like yeah. fuck you and like really <laughs> you know, it's pretty brutal. Uh and then, yeah, that sends him over the edge. And, he, and then the only like, real flaw in the screenplay that I saw was when Greg Kinnear then lures her back to the scene of the crime mm-hmm. in order, I guess, for her to find out that he was the murderer. That, yeah, I, and, and, I, I agree with you, and I had the same thought. My estimation of it is that... He took her there to kill her because yeah, that's, that's he, the only un... He took her there to kill her well, yeah, he knew that she would figure it out eventually. He knew she would see it eventually. Well, I think he even told her, I'm sorry, I think she even told him, as she told Gary Cole, the prosecutor, he Donnie didn't do it. Donnie didn't yeah. do no, it. No, she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah she did. Uh, which I was curious when they were in that moment together at his house if she was going to do that or not. Because that's like, for someone grieving in that way, not knowing what she ended up discovering later, but just thinking that he's just a grieving almost widow, I guess, kind of widow. Mm-hmm. They weren't married yet, but yeah. um, 
it's a bold thing to say to a person in that situation, you know? And so I was, there was, there was a little tension there that I, that I liked of like, is she going to say it to him too? Or is she just going to let him think that everything's like done and over with? But yeah, my, I had the same thought and then I was thinking about it a little more and I was like, well, he had to do something because she knew eventually he, he knew eventually she would see it and he could get her in a compromising position by playing along with her as if he's helping her. And then I think that there's almost this like element of him thinking that by her knowing and admitting that she knew what had happened, that maybe he was hoping it would absolve him of some of the guilt or he would find some kind of closure in it or something like that. I mean, I think there was, a, I think there wasn't cause he doesn't, he doesn't approach it in a super menacing manner. And even once he does attack her, it's not in this like vindictive way, the way that like Donnie attacks everybody that he fucking sees, you know? Right. Um, So I, I don't know. I I found that moment interesting, but I I do think it was probably the weakest moment of the screenplay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think what, one of the things that struck me about this film was how much it, it seems to be about, um, toxicity and masculinity in all of its forms Let, let's say like you have the obvious toxic masculinity of donnie who's just an abuser mm-hmm. and a, a racist a racist and, and all... i mean like just you know all the worst of sort of male dominance that that exists out there um and the, and then you have giovanni rubisi that's sort of the damaged masculinity right this kind of you know trauma drenched individual tortured who's tortured right exactly and who but lashes out and 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 can't control himself lashing out sometimes because he has these even with people that he genuinely cares for right but then you know the character who through much of the and then you have gary cole smarmy Mm -hmm. sort of masculinity but then with power comes um privilege right but but then you have uh you know the greg kinnear character who on the surface is the most like he's a teacher, right? A principal, principal right? He's in yeah. education and no cares about pursuit. the kids. He's nice. Cares about the children. He's seems like you know. You see him. I mean, there should be a little tip off there in that first time when you see him and he's wearing short sleeves and a tie. You don't wear short sleeves and a tie, folks. That doesn't ever. No, no. Um, Small town Georgia. I guess you can get away with it. <laughs> but I disagree. But, but nonetheless, like he seems like wearing so, white socks with black shoes, so clean cut, and so and and that's kind of like what Greg Kinnear is traded on. Is he looks yeah. like the kind of you know, prototypical American everyman, you dad, know, dad, like, right, know. exactly. And and yet under the surface there is sort of the most menacing, most potentially dangerous. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, because I mean I mean it's we don't inc- we don't develop it a whole lot in the film because we're kind of hiding it through much of the film, right? Because it's we don't essential wanna, to the who done it, right? We don't want to give it, it away, but then once it does become revealed, you realize, oh, geez, under the surface the whole time there was this potential for this kind of violence, you know, the, yeah. the, this kind of uh, acting out, self-serving so, violence too. It's like it, you know, it's a uh, it's a violence that comes from things should go my way, like things should be the way that I want them to be. Right, right. And when, they're, and when they're not, I have to exert my control and make them right. the way that I, I mean, feel is just. I think we can all understand the feeling of being, uh, you know, 
being fooled, being misled, betrayed. being disrespected, being betrayed. But the reaction to that is not like, I kill you. The reaction <laughs> yeah. is that, like, th- this relationship is over. I'm walking away from this. We're no longer friends. You know, like, but, but that he can't do that. You know what I mean? Like, he has to just know this is, this ends. I end you now. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's, that, that's, that's not, stark. that's not good. No, that's not no, good. It's, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> and, you know, and I, and I think the Kate Blanchett character being so tapped in, it kind of, it, it, you know, again, it, it goes to a supernatural level in this film, but I think in general, just this sense that you're kind of tapped into these disruptions in the social fabric that exists, and, and this is obviously an event that kind of ripples throughout this town and, and, and kind of has these uh, reverberations, and that she's such an integral member, it makes sense that she's kind of the locus of the whole thing, and that, you know, or, or the, the sort of center of it all yeah. in, in a certain sense. So I, I don't know. It's, it, it, I think it has its failings. I don't think it's a perfect film. No, but, but it's a good one. I think it's, it was really compelling, and I think it has this kind of mystery element as we've pointed out that's going to string you along and keep you engaged it has the supernatural stuff which with sam raimi at the helm is being visualized well and and i think handled really nicely great performances this is a very enjoyable film that i think if you haven't seen it if this is one of those like me where you look at sam raimi's filmography and you say oh yeah i missed that one I think this is one that you're gonna be in. You're you're gonna be happy if you uh, put it on some night and and just let yourself take it in. It's a pleasant watch. Uh, one other thing that I will say is that the I don't know that we necessarily needed the like son not dealing well with the the dad's death with yeah. the dad. So I guess I don't, have we even mentioned that Annie Kate Blanchett is a widow. Is a widow. Her she's got her, three her, small boys. She has three sons. Her husband died in an explosion at, at his job. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's something that comes up in the trial. Like, oh, if you can see the future, why'd you let your husband go to work, you bitch? Or you know, they were yeah. like really coming for her. Um, and but I, now that I'm saying it out loud, it makes a little bit more sense if we're examining toxic masculinity in all of its forms, then like this boy acting out because he doesn't feel like he can talk to anybody about the grief that he's experiencing Mm. is kind of in line with that. But overall, with the exception of bringing her and Greg Kinnear together, it doesn't serve the plot in a significant way. It doesn't really push any characters along. It doesn't push the narrative along it doesn't really serve as an inciting incident for any conflict it's just it's it's there to bring her and the her and greg kinnear together it comes up again but not in a way that really does a whole lot and then it's resolved at the end yeah there was another you just made me think of another big screenwriting fall fail flaw and that is um that at the trial of Donnie, after the dead girl's body is found in his pond, mm-hmm. she goes up on the stand and is severely cross-examined. Uh, they're trying to discredit her as a seer, but that has nothing to do with the case at hand. The body was still found right. in the pond. However, they found it there doesn't well, really but they, matter. Well, the, but they were trying to make this claim that it wasn't really her supernatural abilities, that she just knew things about it, and she had talked to people, and like, so some... 
she had like direct contact with somebody who was it still who doesn't knew. change the burden of proof. I thought that they were going to no, but I think they were trying to, her of having trying to get her to reveal like, well, who's your source? You mm -hmm. don't really have this psychic ability. Yeah. Who's who told you about this? And, that's an unchristian thought. And, yeah, and and I mean, even when you're a defense in the defense attorney's position, all you have you don't have to prove that Donnie didn't do it. You just have to introduce reasonable doubt sure. that he did. Right. You know, and sway one jury member to not vote guilty, which they did not succeed at, and so do I, deserve to be This is not an Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2 or even Army of Darkness or even Spider-Man. Or Drag Me to Hell. Um, you know, in his canon, but I'm certainly glad that we took a moment to take a look at it on this weekend when we're not going to discuss. We're not going to discuss superhero hit. movies at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Full stop. Kylie also really liked this movie. She was almost about to have to leave to go run a work errand in the middle of it. And then she was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to finish this movie. <laughs> I want to see who the did week. it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, well, hey, good. look. We all agreed that the movie was, <laughs> was certainly an enjoyable. And clutch uh, of that, that uh, I believe that to use the term bruja, that Kate Blanchett is a legit modern day bruja and her ability to see... We got well, I don't to know see. if she can be because she's white, but you know. But what did you guys think about Carlos? You picked this up at our local grocery store, the Brujas Brew IPA Shiner Tex Hex. It's all right. 7%. It's interesting. It's definitely an older approach to the IPA. You know what yeah, I mean? It's, it's, it's bitter. It's more the bitter kind of, you know, I guess, West Coast interpretation of the IPA. Um, I guess we could say third coast, given that they're they're going more for Tex Hex. But um, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a disappointment by any stretch. But it's in it's interesting, you know, in our era of hazy, juicy, you know, citrus bomb IPAs to have something that's definitely going for more of that kind of earthy, bitter, old school we, IPA. We've done a uh, hell of a lot IPA. of IPAs with a hell of, a hell of a lot of adjuncts. Do you think the addition of cactus water that uh, Spencer Oh, that's a good Spencer's question. Did I didn't here? even remember that, that that from the description. I can't tell you that I detect cactus water, but I don't know what cactus water tastes like on its own. Never yeah, never had cactus water. I have had I had Nopalitos or Napolitos? Yeah, I've had uh, no, nopales. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've had that. And a taco. Uh, and For you guys that don't live in South Texas, that's when they take the cactus leaf, the patty-looking thing mm -hmm. of a cactus. They take off all of the spiny outside, slice it up, grill it, and put it into a taco or a dish. Yeah. Don't care for that at all. Um, but I've never had cactus water. Don't detect any of... Yeah, any strong influence from that in it. If I arrived at a barbecue and this was in the cooler, I'd grab one and I'd enjoy it. Will I buy another six pack of this? Probably not. I don't chase the Shiner product the way that many Texas devotees do. That ruby red grapefruit comes out, I gotta go get it. You know, that kind of kind of enthusiasm. The guy <laughs> I've never had that for Shiner products outside of Shiner probably being my first real step away from mass produced beer in college. I was a Shiner Bach Bach. Uh, in case you don't live near us or if uh, it's yeah, it, Devotee. Shiner was my beer was for years and years and years. Yeah, I mean it's Anthony's craft of choice. Mm -hmm. Uh 
I, I had one earlier today uh, as I was waiting for Kylie to get done with work. Um, I And if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you would know that the break of my sobriety, uh, several years that I spent not drinking, was for Shiner Strawberry Blonde. Mm. So Shiner definitely has its place in my history right. as a craft, a craft beer head. Um, I don't chase it down either. The guy who built the original hybrid fixtures got paid in Ruby Redbird. <laughs> really, Jordan? Yeah, he was wow. he was he was in between jobs, and he was like, eh, you know, just give me some Ruby Redbird every time I have to show up, and you know, and pay I, for the I, and pay for the materials, and I'll be fine. I was like, all right. I, it, no matter what state you're listening in, there is a craft brewery, True Craft, meaning that they qualify because of the amount of barrels that they produce. They're under that threshold. That's the dominant one of the dominant kind of forces in your state's beer scene. And Shiner has that here. Shiner and St. Arnold. Yeah. And to a lesser extent, Real Ale. Mm-hmm. All three beers, all three Definitely breweries Shiner that we've St. discussed Arnold. on the show. But Shiner has a place in Texas and always will. In fact, that was one of the nails in Carbox's coffin is when they did that bullshit Crawford Bach. Yeah, they tried to come for Shiner's they head. They tried on that to go one. into of course that was Shiner, Texas. Are you fucking out of your mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't putting like up, your business practices. Putting up billboard in brewery. Shiner saying the, there's a new Bach in town or whatever yeah, the fuck it fuck was that off. they said. Also, not a great beer. No. Like, I mean, to it, me. It has Astro's classic stripe color pattern on it, so therefore yeah. it's fantastic marketing, but. I'll. I'll 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 save the rest of this conversation for when we have oh, Shiner Bach on here because this, I yeah. definitely have a lot <laughs> to say. Um, but I mean, I imagine we are going to have quite a bit to say in the second half of this episode. I so can't wait. we watched a good movie. We had a good, decent at least beer, uh, and hopefully we're going to run it back in the second half. We'll see what happens when we return. Welcome back. All right, here we go. Um, we are going to crack a beer, a beer that we are very privileged to have. Uh, shouts out to Harold. Uh, he has a buddy that brews uh, out in New Marcy, New York. It's a brewery that was established in 2015 called Woodland Farm Brewery. And let's see. Thanks for drinking great beer and supporting local agriculture as Oneida's as Oneida County's first farm brewery, Ooh. Woodland utilizes ingredients grown across New York State. Our goal is to provide a great atmosphere for craft beer enthusiasts and continually brew new, fresh, and exciting beer. Eat local, listen local, drink local. Uh, and this is called Running on Emptiness. It is a barrel-aged strong ale. 12% batch from 2021. This experimental blend has been two years in the making. It started with a portion of our anniversary We Heavy Aged and Rye Whiskey Barrels for a year. These barrels were then blended with our LB Lives Barley Wine and then aged in Cherry Brandy Barrels for over a year. It is 12% ABV, if I didn't mention that already. And when these beers were sent, there's there's three beers from this brewery that, 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 that we have received and that we'll slowly drink over time. Um, this is the first one that we've had, but when they arrived to me... 
I sent a picture to Harold and I, I was like, I was like, these are the ones that he sent because he wasn't sure which ones he was sending. And the first thing that Harold said was, he does great barrel aged stuff. So I think we're in for a real treat on this All one. Right. And the reason that I decided to pick these beers is because they are, bi- it seems that they are big, bad, over the top, high octane beers. And I can't think of anything more fitting. <laughs> than a big, bad, over-the-top beer for the movie that we're about to discuss. You, you did say bad, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, pass that thing around, because I want to sniff it before yeah, we get yeah, started. Yeah. Before we get into the, the film here, this is uh, this is exciting. I always love it when we can uh, hit a new brewery, and, and that's certainly here. And this is one that I don't think, unless Harold had facilitated it, that we would have very easily gotten our hands there's on a, anytime. There's a lot so. happening on that note. And I'll we you, say it all the what. time. And Harold, you know, we've got a couple of friends whose names, if you're a longtime listener, you've heard before. Harold, Daniel. Help me out. A few others. That Martin has given us some yeah, beer over the years. Andrew, Kyle can get Kyle, into... Kyle sent us a, He was the first to send us a box. Yeah. Kyle was. You can get into that club. And this isn't even like, please send us beer. It's like, listen, if you've got a brewery that is your favorite where you live and we're never going to get our hands on it, you can help us do that and we would love to talk about it. Yeah. Just DM us and we'll tell you how to do that. Yeah. Well, um, exciting. And and I agree. Very, very complex nose. Definitely getting some of that, the the, uh, indicators of that farmhouse brewing style. Uh, I think this is going to be some, there's going to be a little acidity in there, folks. Um, and, and some uh, of the sweetness from those a those, brewery those on a farm. Brandy. I've got a story about that in after hours. So exciting stuff as we jump into the pool here with uh, the 1985 American comedy horror film Crime Wave. Uh, Who's behind this film? Well, lo and behold, Sam Raimi is is a big figure, but and? probably equally important here is that it was co-written. By Ramey with two guys named Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen, otherwise known to our listeners and, and cinema cinephiles everywhere as the Cohen brothers. Right? Explosion if, sound if effect. If we were doing this podcast back then and we had just seen Evil Dead and we had just seen Blood Simple, this would be a project I think that we would be very curious about. Yes, we'd be doing a radio show at that point. But yeah, <laughs> that's sure. right. Yeah, no, no podcasts at that point. And this was that the guy who had the cassette distribution idea. He never actually did it right. He just went around and was like a patent troll and tried to get podcasts. Nah, that, that's a rabbit hole. We can talk about uh, it. I know hour. what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, you know, here what we have is a film that's about a man who's been sentenced to death, Vic Ajax. Um, and as the film begins, we see him sitting there on the electric chair, ready to be put to death. Um, but, While he clamors about his innocence. Right. But then we see, in a very extended flashback that takes up the majority of the running time of the film, the events that actually led to him being on that electric t- electric chair. Um, this mistaken... Uh, situation where it seems like he's the culprit behind this mass crime wave, th- these these killings that take part. Um, but it's all a case of mistaken identity, folks, as we find out throughout the course of the film, because those murders were not committed by him, but rather by a pair of their brothers, right? Um, I, I did not I get that from the film. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. No, I guess they're just exterminators okay yeah um who 
uh, are essentially like some kind of weird comedy team as well as being, uh, you know, exterminators uh, who who get hired by... Uh, oh my gosh, it's so convoluted, right? Um, who, who, Something with a T is the guy's name. Trend. Trend, yeah. Yeah. Um, that, uh, right, that Mr. Trend... Yeah, is in the company uh is is planning to sell it and he trend is not going to sell it no he's learned that his partner's going to sell okay. it okay and so he tries to stop that by hiring these exterminators who go to eliminate the partner and and, mm-hmm. and all of these others and so what you get is this sort of i mean it is so fucking weird this, this movie is I don't even know how to start. I mean, this is a cartoon, right? I mean, it, this is, so I guess to establish, I don't know why I'm struggling so much. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to do But it. to establish where this film seems to be headed, like, okay, why this film is even relevant to talk about is that we've seen these filmmakers, Raimi and the Coen brothers, take this idea, this like, let's bring the aesthetics of Looney Tunes into live action filmmaking and we've seen them do it really well right raising arizona evil dead uh evil dead already happened at this point right that's what i'm saying like they've they've had this concept they've it before and after um and hudsucker proxy hudsucker proxy i mean they were they were working on hudsucker proxy at the same time they were working on this film as well Mm -hmm. yeah um that that we've seen do well this film i have to say does not do it well. There, there's, there's some things that it does fine in terms of translating that Looney Tune aesthetic to live action, but in service of what? Well, the guy on death row falls. Before in, we get too far into the film, can I, can I just say a couple things about course, Sam Raimi yes, as yes. a filmmaker? That's why you're here, Carlo. Uh, he is possibly the most complicated and complex filmmaker that I've ever encountered in my life. He is simultaneously an incredible visionary auteur with an unrelenting sense of creativity and a completely unapologetic vision for what he thinks film should be and can be. And, and if he doesn't know how it can be, he invents the way to do he it. He finds a way to get what is in his brain on the screen mm. in a way that a lot of people are probably afraid to do, uh, whether they're afraid to fail or whether they're afraid to disappoint the studio or whether they think they there's no way I can accomplish what I want to accomplish without the with unless there's enough money to do it, you know, whatever the case may be. But he's he I, I I find I think he's kind of like the Gen X John Carpenter, in a in a way John Carpenter being like of a baby boomer generation I feel more he's a little older. Uh, but Sam Raimi is a guy who when put under restrictions, not a lot of money, really scrappy DIY kind of outfit really yields these incredible results. And then when he's given carte blanche to do whatever he wants he makes oz the great and powerful (laughs) you know uh which i find interesting um and i just i just don't know what to do with him you know what i mean because 
Well, when he when because he, this film is incredible, incredible, but it's also fucking terrible okay. at the same time. It is so mind-boggling and perplexing. I could not believe what I was watching. I agree that it was a it was a jaw-dropping film in the sense that I just I'm like, what? Why did they even think that this was? What's the motivation? I don't so, understand. So, so some background on this movie is it's like the first studio movie that Sam Raimi does off the back of Evil Dead success, Embassy Pictures, which at the time was run by Norman Lear. Norman mm-hmm. Lear's the guy that greenlit this movie. Right. Uh, decides that like, oh, this guy did what with how much money? We'll give him some money. So he, so Sam Raimi budgets like two and a half million dollars to make this movie. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that when you're working with a studio other people a have a say in what you're doing and b you have to do shit like use union workers and so there's all these other expenses that he wasn't that he was not even aware of when he made wasn't aware of wasn't expecting and so immediately they're over budget and don't because when he made evil dead every cent is on the screen yeah yeah and and a lot of of, and a lot of the backstory and stuff that i learned about this film came from a podcast called blank check and i just feel like i deserve to give credit where credit is due and share my sources they're it's a podcast about filmography, so they're in the midst of their Sam Raimi series oh, okay. as we speak. Would you recommend the um, podcast? It's a fantastic podcast. We're talking like two to three hour episodes. What's the name of it uh, again? It's called Blank Check with Griffin and David. Thanks. It is where our podcast is more opinion based and conversational. They have like a research team, mm-hmm. you know, and so there's a lot of historical context and like backstory and stuff that you get from them. And they really go into it with this one, which is a film that's very hard to learn anything about because no one involved with it wants to speak about it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah, the Cohen brothers, especially, I feel like really want to bury it. So does Sam Raimi. Um, but yeah, first studio movie, immediately under budget. Uh, from the get go, Sam Raimi writes the main character for Bruce Campbell and the studio says no. Yeah. Right off the bat. And if he, to you know, replace him with the more bankable, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. what, what, who is it? Paul Smith? Who's no, it's not the, Paul no, Smith. Is, uh, which one is Victor? Reed Bernie. Reed Bernie. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, marquee name, marquee yeah. name. Uh, yeah. Which is, which is crazy. But one thing that if you know anything about Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell's careers and their work together is that like, Bruce Campbell is a huge collaborator in Sam Raimi's process, especially in the early days. Like they really, Sam Raimi, his brother, whose name, name I believe is Ted. Yeah. Ted. Uh, yeah. And Bruce Campbell are like this trifecta of people that like do everything together. And like, especially on those evil dead movies and stuff, Bruce Campbell is, yes, he's the star, but he's also moving shit. And he's yeah. like r- running, you know, he's, helping edit and he's doing all this other stuff and these people a won't let him be the star of the film and b as soon as they're done rapping they're like why do you this guy has no business being involved in post-production get him out of here he's an actor his time's over you know and so they're kind of stripping bruce campbell away from sam raimi's creative process which is this from the very success that they were banking on exactly and Mm -hmm. so like at at this point early in his career he hasn't established a creative process outside of this like trio of people or whatever uh and so the whole production is just a fucking shit show from the very beginning. And what I thought was interesting about your synopsis, David, was the worst synopsis I've ever attempted. Folks. <laughs> there, you could not have done any better because yeah. uh, this movie is perplexing on many levels. But the uh, 
the book ends of this movie were shot after they were sh- reshoots. Okay. So the whole electric chair. Oh, that, that was an attempt thing. to have it make sense. Yes. Oh, the wow. studio came in and like inserted that. And so in that process, Francis, Mc- Francis McDormand is one of the nuns in the oh, car. Oh, I didn't even beginning. notice that. Okay. And the photographers uh, in the electric chair room are the Coen brothers. Oh, uh, so there's those little Easter eggs sprinkled okay. in there. But yeah, the studio thought, if we do this and have it be this like flashback thing, it'll make sense. Uh, <laughs> the title crime wave is also a studio intervention. Uh, there were a few titles. The only one I remember was the XYZ murders. Mm-hmm. And that was cause the studio was like movies with X in the title and movies with murder in the title read really well for audiences. And they're like, well, we'll give you both. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, eventually it gets changed to crime wave. But it is. A, I'm, you said Looney Tunes. That's the first thing I thought of when I was watching this movie. It's like this is a fucking cartoon. Like yeah. it. There's. It's got all the bing, bang, point, zap, like sound. Two effects. people lean Crazy down to pick something up, the and their thing. heads collide, and you hear a gong, you know, like a coconuts <laughs> bumping together. There's but but one scene where our protagonist sees a hot girl, and his tie flies up. <laughs> Yes, and, and that was that's like in the first five five minutes it's of the movie. Super early it's in the like, movie. Oh God! Uh, <laughs> and and so just to cap off my kind of like back story that I gleaned from this podcast about about this film was that Ronaldo the heel the character that Bruce Campbell does actually play right uh, kind of a was swarthy Lothario. Yeah, was. Dr- dramatically expanded once they realized that they weren't going to be able to put him in the lead. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the better parts of the movie, yeah, I think. I find I Bruce Campbell's performance in this movie really mm-hmm. funny. I mean, he's like absolutely ridiculous, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he has lines like, uh, oh, I've never seen you before. I like that in a woman. Uh, or, you know, <laughs> shit like that. It's absolutely At some point, so he realizes that the date's not going anywhere, so he says, okay, I'm going to put down half of the money for the check. Goodbye. You know, Something about the cab where he says he doesn't want to break a hundred. I think I think he's you saying, pay for the cab. I don't want to break. I don't want to break a hundred. I mean, his costuming and everything too is absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the voices that the villains are doing is crazy. Uh, the two guys, the exterminators that are actually in- what is his name? Brian James is that? The yeah, one? and then um, Paul L. Smith, Paul Smith was the other yeah, guy. Right. Um, Paul Smith, I think a lot of that was overdubbed because yeah. he wouldn't take direction. And oh, is that why? Okay. It's a, I noticed it's, that the... It's a, it's a wrestler that does his voice. It's not actually his voice. Yeah. Um, but the the Arthur character, the Brian, Brian James, James yeah. character, he can like mimic anybody's voice, I think, kind of. Because like, yeah. there's the scene where Nancy and... Ajax is that the Vic? Guy? Yeah, Vic yeah. Uh, is they're they're in the room, but he's also in the room because he's hiding because the cops are there, and right. then he's speaking for both people when they're in different. It's just it's crazy. Yeah, the movie is crazy. I mean, that's I think that that's the thing that's so frustrating for me watching this film is like there is some like manic energy that throughout the entire thing. It moves thing a million miles an hour. That I feel like, I kept feeling like I want to tap into this. I want to just get swept away by it. I want it to be so silly that I get caught up in it. But instead, it just like, I could never really find a place to jump in. It just felt so impenetrable as it was like whizzing by. 
I, I think I think the problem is that there isn't a likable character in this movie. No, that's true. And so there's it's you're not you're never rooting for anybody really right. at the end of the day. Like Vic's character is a little weird and is has kind of just like made up this idea that Nancy is kind of kind of you know Ben Braddock X <laughs> right from the graduate just deciding it's just like, that he's it's just yeah. like oh yeah this girl is gonna give me some kind of purpose in life yeah. but isn't very suave or likable right, right. or seems to have any idea how to speak to another human being and then Nancy's kind of like shitty to him most of the time mm-hmm. and it seems to her motivations unclear uh, the two guys that own the business die immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the, the exterminators are the villains. You're not supposed to like them, and it's just like who? Though they do seem like maybe the, the most main characters. well-developed main <laughs> yeah. characters of the entire. And so the it's just like who am I supposed for, to give a shit about? The person you root for is the African American gentleman with the shaving cream on his face. Hey, but he comes and goes in five minutes. Yeah. I, he's ex- the most ex- likable ex- character, exactly. right? But. And that's the guy you root for. This movie's bad. It's not just tonally inconsistent and like a, a bad kind of execution of what might have been interesting, which is let's let's make a Looney Tunes cartoon into a movie. It is so. It is just it is just bad. So when we the three of us talk about a movie that most of our audience has not seen or even heard of, I never heard of this movie. Well, it was really really hard to find for a long time. I imagine that it was because of that notion that everyone wanted to bury it, bury it because it, it just performed so poorly, and I don't think was executed to it where made, anybody wanted it to be. Everyone tried to take their names off of this thing. Five thousand yeah. dollars the box office. And sometimes you find those movies, and they're they are a gym actually they were underappreciated at their time well, that's what i was hoping for I me mean, too like, when, when we went into this there you know my hope was okay clearly Raimi, the cohen's there's gonna be something beautiful here there's gotta be how could there not if be? i dig if i just look for in the right place and that was so <laughs> frustrating to watch this thing and just Every opportunity, I'm like, no, this is garbage. This is garbage. Oh, my God. And, like, again, the most I can do is to say I can see some of that inkling that they had to, like, how do we translate that kind of manic cartoon energy to film? But they've done it so much better at other points. Like, again, Raimi had already done it better with Evil Dead, and he even did better with Evil Dead 2 and, you know, and, and Army of Darkness. The Coens did it better with Raising Arizona, Hudsucker Proxy, these other kind of slapstick style comedies that they did, you know, yeah. at, at different points in their career that they eventually got away from. But, you know, well, Hail Caesar has a yeah, little oh, that's bit of true. That Hail, Hail Caesar it. brought that. that that's has true. Some, that was the latest one that yeah, they it's did. Got some of that energy to it. But it's so that's why it's like these guys get it. They understand how to put it, and the Coens generally understand story structure and and how yeah. to do the. But none of that is on display here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is just like you're saying. Who do I care about in this tale? You've Nobody. established no characters. Very like you spend no time. Like set Vic up. If Vic is gonna be our main character, give me some reason to care about this guy. M- make him the the hapless loser. Show yeah. me h- him like make him the Keith Gordon of this movie. There you go. Like sh- show me that he's at least good hearted. What are you trying talking to do about? Something. I don't know. <laughs> you know. 
and, and instead you just nope I'm gonna throw him in here and we're gonna hope that you care about this guy and that you even you know get, no yeah it, it's I mean it it really is so interesting because you're right not only had Sam Raimi already done this better but the Coens would go on to do it better as well but then like Hollywood at large figured it out and made Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the Mask yeah and like I literally just watched the Mask while the when I was quarantined a couple weeks ago. I was I was just trying to find movies to watch, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, I'll put this on." And it's like the thing that makes those two movies specifically work really well is that they're these kind of Looney Tunes like slapstick kind of movies. But in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you have this like supernatural conceit that cartoons and real live action people can interact with each other they coexist in the same way and then in the mask you have this idea that jim carrey can put this mask on and he's this green guy that can do all this crazy stuff and whatever and so like when you see him swing dancing and when you see like all this crazy you see his tie blow up yeah or or like how or how just like in this movie to a certain degree more so in the mask but like the villains are kind of these 1930s gangster guy you know like all of that kind of heightenedness makes sense because the main conceit of the movie is vaguely supernatural or overtly yeah, yeah, supernatural yeah. this movie is grounded in reality but has this well, really heightened absolutely absurd style to it right and it because you haven't suspended that disbelief going into it of like oh this guy can put this mask on and be crazy or oh cartoons are real or whatever it makes it so much harder to go there with it top that off with the movie not really having an emotional center to it and it makes it very difficult to watch i will not i won't call this movie unwatchable it's difficult but i think i think it fits in the party movie category because you can put it on and at any point in time when you look up you're going to see something baffling yeah and conversation starting and i also like this movie because it shows me that people that are as deified and like pantheonic <laughs> right, as right. the Coen brothers and to some degree Sam Raimi maybe not quite as much not as much uh, critical acclaim as the Coens have had right at but one point sucked power, at yeah. one point sucked yeah <laughs> you know it, I, and that makes they, me feel good they're, about they're myself capable of missteps as well in, yeah. my, in my research you know a question that was asked over and over how did this not bury the, bury the careers of both teams but we see Sam Raimi say, my bounce back is to do Evil Dead 2. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, he had to. Yeah. And it, it, the, this forced Evil Dead 2. And then the Coen brothers follow up directorially with Raising Arizona, which is one of my favorite movies of all time and a movie I look forward for us to doing someday on, on the program. I do know that you love that one. Maybe for a cage match. <laughs> I, I, I would love to. I, I watched, which is coming up. I watched this movie after I watched The Gift. So I watched these in the order that we have discussed them. And one thing that's really interesting that I had never... I don't know. I guess most of Sam Raimi's movies, because we haven't done a ton of them on the show. We did the first, or we did Evil we Dead. We did Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. But I had already seen those movies so many times by the time that we talked about them that that was more of a just like, how do I feel about these? Yeah. And looking at them slightly less critically than I am when I'm watching a movie for this show for the first, and I'm seeing it for the first time to yeah. talk about on the show. 
so one thing that I noticed with these, and it, yeah, with the Spider-Man movies, I saw those when I was young, and I wasn't like, hmm, cinema, you know? I was like, <laughs> ah. I was like, wee, you know, like just like a kid or whatever. <laughs> Macy Gray makes this better. <laughs> Don't talk shit about Macy Gray. I fucks with her, uh, as we've talked about before. Anyway, uh, what, but one thing that these movies have really made me realize is that Sam Raimi is like pretty unhinged in the editing room. Like he, in all of his movies and I'm only just now realizing this does these crazy cross dissolves and wipes and like all sorts of these crazy transition Mm -hmm. things in all of his movies, like in the gift, which is a pretty straight film for Sam Raimi. There are a lot of really crazy dissolves and transit and like, transition no you're right he, and, he has he has an approach to editing that's in a, uh in a pretty stands a, out i mean his approach to editing got me a b in editing for my final because you were trying to emulate his uh, i wasn't trying to emulate i just i i just so happened to use a lot of cross dissolves which i see him do oh, okay and you know a certain someone found that to be unsatisfactory and gave me a B for it, which I was yeah. pretty livid about it. I will but. say in this that one thing I enjoyed about it was seeing some of the tricks that he had done in Evil Dead again. Yeah. Uh, the the POV of the plates that are flying at the the bad guy at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell. I don't know how they did it with a bigger budget, but the the thing he did on Evil Dead, which if everyone knows about, putting the camera on a long two by four and running it quickly, through did the, the same thing out, in this movie. Did the same. Did some of those same same uh, tricks. Not, uh, not a lot uh, of smoke coming out of things that smoke shouldn't come out of. But <laughs> yeah. we'll see that again later in his career. Yeah, I wish there would have been, but yeah, he. He tried to get some piece of equipment to do the two by four thing better in the studio because, uh-huh. you know, like I said at the top, uh, he immediately came in over budget straight from the get go. They wouldn't give him the tools that he yeah. needed, so they went back to their scrappy DIY ways. And for seventy five cents, made a, you know, not a steady cam, but something that they could do the kind of tracking yeah. stuff with. Uh, apparently, also the production on this was like a nightmare, like Apocalypse Now level like condition yeah <laughs> a lot of a lot of people injured on set a lot of people injured and a lot of people like wondering why someone didn't die on set because the stunts weren't done by professionals in, in many cases it's just everything about it it was all this is all night shoots too so i mean you're yeah. in detroit in the winter and at night i mean all of it is just a fucking mess what? and so it just seems like nothing literally nothing went right on this movie they the studio also wouldn't uh, let him use Joe LaDuca, who did the scores for the Evil Dead movies. They made him bring in their own guy, somebody different. Um, so just everything that he tried and wanted to do, it seemed like didn't happen or was working against him or something went wrong. Yeah, it's and one of those films that I think you learn as a director that if you can get creative control, get it. Yeah, because he lost creative control here. I think he even attempted to take his name off of the thing. I guess the million dollar question, would you recommend people see this? 100%. Oh, God. 100% you have to see this movie. I'm going to go the other way. Honestly, if you've listened to our discussion, I think you've got enough idea of it. (laughs) You you can skip it. I, I almost agree with Carlos from a checking things off of a list standpoint. I don't. I Especially don't. If watch five a, minutes of it. You'll get the idea. Shut it off, or put it on. Put it on mute then, and have your friends it's funny. over. And it's funny you say that. Up. I've heard Carlos say on the show, hadn't said it in a very, very, very long time. Yeah, I didn't even finish this movie that I'm about to professionally review. <laughs> I, I almost quit. Same. I, I, I came close. I, I almost came close. quit. 
Um, but I for, kept giving it a chance. I'm like, okay, maybe it's going to turn. Yeah. I, I, I paused this movie at a certain because did you guys watch it with ads? Yeah. Okay. I watched it with ads, but no ads came on. Okay, I got a lot of Lucky ads. you. I did yeah. get, yeah. I, they, they were they hard got longer. Cuts. They were, yeah, they you got guys longer. Got they my were ads. hard. If you cuts. go to Prime Video, there is a version with ads for free. That, that, yeah, that you can watch. But there free. were no ads on mine. I liked that. So at a certain point, I paused it thinking, like, okay, we're nearing the third act. I still had over an hour left. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I felt was, the same way. There were a couple times where I. I don't remember if I paused it for sure or if I just checked the time counter when it hit one of the commercial breaks or whatever. Yeah. And I remember being astounded, like, there is no way I've only been watching this for 20 minutes. Yeah. This feels like it's been three days. And I'm- like, and, and the thing is, it's just because it moves at such a breakneck pace. Like, and yet goes nowhere. And goes that- nowhere. <laughs> and like, which, which you're right. You're right. And, you know, it's not really trying to say anything. No. It's like... I mean, film it's for the best, sake of film. At like, best, it's like a parody of something that I don't even know what that thing is. I guess crime films, I guess gangster films, in a sense, but it's not. It's but yeah, just, but it's because because it, it's there's no like real sharp critique of any of those things. No. It's just I don't know. It's just this weird kind of anomaly of a, I've I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, and I think that's why it's worth watching is because. And and I'm not saying like sit down, turn the lights off, make some popcorn, and just really engage with this movie. Yeah. Well, you know, put like, it on while I, you're folding your laundry. Well, or something, how about those you know, times like... in your life where you hate yourself and you hate the world <laughs> and you just want to wallow in despair? Put this on, and it will just drive you deeper into that black hole. I would I would disagree. I think it would bring you out of that black hole because you would you because at least at the end of it you would be like, well, at least I didn't make that movie. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> At least I'm not. Okay, resp- maybe. At least I'm not. Maybe that's the this. redemption here: is that if you watch this, you will know that you could never make anything worse than this. You've never <laughs> failed this hard. You, you've never fallen on your face to this and level. I, and I feel comfortable saying this because, look, Raimi and the Coens have gone on to have amazing careers. Astounding. They, they've made, like, like you say, the the Coens maybe critically, in a way that Raimi never really has achieved, but Raimi in terms of box office returns in a way that the Coens have never achieved. fandom. So there's, you know, there's definitely such brighter lights in both of these sets of careers. Sure. Yeah, it feels to me that for both of those teams, this movie really was running on empty. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. and, but, and, uh-huh. and that's, and that, that was good, but I'm, but, but I'm not done. Uh, <laughs> you've got more to say about the, okay. Well, I, I, I just, I just feel this, like this actually was one of the better, in terms of beer names, better tie-ins <laughs> better that we've tie-ins. had. Yeah. Look, the last thing I'll say is that I recommend this movie. The same reason I recommend that wa- people watch Gili, which I don't know, have y'all either of y'all ever? bothered to watch that movie yeah i saw it back when it came out the, the main reason that i when if somebody if that movie ever comes up and someone's like is that even worth watching and i i always say yes because there is few and far but be, between better there's there's not as many let me start over Doing a Joe where I say, like, yeah, you can uh, cut this out. There's, yeah, you, you can't though. It's so Carlos, you can cut this out. Um, I won't. Uh, there are not very many better examples of a movie adding up to so much less than the sum of its parts than Geely. 
almost no film has gone wrong in as many different ways against all expectations as that movie has. Like you've got Christopher Walken, Al Pacino, $170 million. Like, you know, and it's the worst. It's so bad. It's so fucking bad. And it's really a a sight to behold. I think Mm -hmm. just like, I think this movie is really something to behold. Like, yeah, it is a singular film in a strange way. And I just, for that reason, I think it's just like, if, if you are, if you're just a casual listener of this podcast that comes in every now and then to hear about like maybe a director you like or a film that you've seen or whatever, maybe it's not for you, but if you're someone that's really, really interested in the craft of filmmaking and how movies are put together and all of the moving parts and like where, you know, all it's, it's worth, seeing because we like to think that a director has sole control over a film and that like their vision is what comes out on screen or whatever but the actual process of filmmaking includes so many different moving parts that can really move things in different directions and i think i mean this movie has fucking nuts yeah in a crazy way um what else is nuts is ending a night on twelve percent. Well, was it, it worth it? You you know when when a film is running on such emptiness that it, we're we're struggling to just find ways to to make sense of of what it is that we spent an hour and a half of our lives watching. Because um, it is not a short movie. Because it's not it's, right. <laughs> uh, that that at least having a barrel aged strong ale like this helps to remind me that good things can happen too um this is outstanding and and it's one of those i mean it's no secret to our listeners that farmhouse ales are something that i enjoy um that that i like the complexity of flavors you're not scared of them and and this is it's right in there right i mean there's just so many different notes it hits there's some sweet kind of caramel in there Mm, there is there's that kind of punchy acidity that that comes uh in towards the back end of it i think there i can't remember what type of barrel this was in but there's some nice barrel in but, there. Uh, but some I'm of get, them were cherry brandy some were rye oh, rye whiskey yeah. yeah definitely get some of those you know the a alcohol and the wood I, I mean there's so much going on every sip i'm taking i'm kind of like you know rolling around in my mouth and i'm kind of thinking okay what's it getting a little bit of cherry in there yep. getting a, other like stone fruit it it's one of those gifts that keeps on giving. But forget the title of this beer applying to this beer. It helps you to get over it with other things that are running on emptiness. This is running on richness and fullness and everything that you want in a farmhouse ale. I, yeah. I want to reread this. It started with a portion of our anniversary wee heavy aged in rye whiskey barrels for a year. These barrels were then blended with our LB Live's barley wine and then aged in cherry brandy barrels for over a year. Think about the level of craftsmanship. Think about the investment in not only resources, but time to be able to put this thing yeah. out. You read something like that and you have an opportunity to taste it and you must say yes because you're going to you're going to taste something that you've never tasted before. That's the experience that I'm having with it right now. We've had mm-hmm. farmhouse sales. We've had barrel-aged farmhouse sales on this show. Mm-hmm. But this is something special and very very unique. And while it's not going to be a go-to beer for me like, you know, can't be. 
Yeah. It, but I, I just mean the high ABV, the 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 complexity yeah. is just it's something to experience, you know. And when you do experience it, like on on a night like tonight, this has washed the terrible taste <laughs> of failure of Crime Wave out of my mouth. Well, well put, Joe. Well yeah, put. The Crime Wave definitely is a failure. That <laughs> I mean, you must see. According that, to that, that you must see. I mean, I look. Yeah. They the, both things can be true, uh, but you know. I really hope that somebody listening has seen this movie <laughs> and will uh, jump in on the conversation as we are prone to do because you know our favorite thing about this podcast is that the conversation doesn't end when the episode ends. You can find uh, the continuation of this discussion and believe me, there is plenty to discuss. Tonight's going to be a long one, I can tell. About Crime Wave that uh, we did not get to. I, and I also do want to like kind of replug that Blank Check podcast because... I think that I know some stuff about movies, right? Yeah. Like I have an academic background in it. Like I, you know, mm-hmm. studied it and I've seen a lot of films. I've helped make some films. These guys make me feel like I've never seen a movie before. <laughs> like the vast breadth of knowledge about films. So uh, a lot of the information I got about Crime Wave came from there. So credit where credit's due. But the conversation will continue on social media. You can find us on Twitter at beer movie show, Instagram at beer and a movie, facebook.com slash beer and a movie TX. As I've been saying for weeks, beer and movie podcast.com is chock full of all sorts of stuff that you need to know about. Uh, Joe's curated all of these great collections of episodes, whether it be about a director or a theme or like all horror October, stuff like that. Any, if you're looking for a way to kind of break into our back catalog, because you're, you know, just kind of jumped on go check that out because you can find something that really uh fits your taste in 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 those curated kind of collections of episodes um you can also find a link to our merch on the website you can find a link to our discord server on the website uh check that out because we're talking about all sorts all sorts of stuff movies uh beer memes the records we're listening to kind of like what happens on our patreon is what's uh kind of happening on discord as well speaking of which patreon.com slash beer and a movie podcast five dollars a month gets you a bonus episode every single week nothing's off limits there um we talk about all sorts of stuff and it's really a great time so for what a dollar 25 a week you can get an extra 30 45 minutes of uh of content and we know you're itching for more content everybody is these days right uh, and of course, if you're listening to this on Apple podcast, please rate review and subscribe, leave a written review, all that kind of stuff, because it really does go a long way to manipulating that algorithm to put us in front of more beer and movie lovers. Uh, so do not forget to do that. Um, this has been another clairvoyant and criminal episode of beer in a movie until next time. Keep talking, baby. Maybe you'll tell me something I don't already know.